Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week is billed as the most consequential for Brexit since the referendum. There was fireworks today with the Conservatives losing their majority. Conservative MP Philip Lee moved over to the Liberal Democratic Party. The big vote prohibiting a no-deal Brexit is coming down the pike. Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he'll push for an election on October 14th if the bill succeeds. With me is Adam Roberts. He's the Midwest correspondent for The Economist, and we're going to chat about what's happening with Brexit in Parliament. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thank you. Happy to be here. I wonder if we could take a step back here and talk about what Boris Johnson did here with the suspension of Parliament previously. It was an idea that this elongated suspension of parliament was going to put off the vote on a no-deal Brexit. A lot of people protested, called Boris Johnson undemocratic. Mm. Um, did, did Boris Johnson lose ground on that whole gamut just coming into today? I think he has been a rather reckless politician, both in the sense of risking his own political fortunes by sticking his neck out in this way and, and first of all, denying and then going ahead with, with the prorogation of, of Parliament. But he's also taking a great risk with Britain's institutions and uh, in, in sort of trapping the Queen into supporting this and, and provoking big protests on the street. When he gave a, a, a statement yesterday outside of 10 Downing Street, you could hear great crowds chanting in the background, stop the coup, stop the coup. So there are very, very angry people on the streets of Britain who feel that he is an incredibly reckless leader who is, is ready to take Britain out of the EU with no deal and no idea of what would come next. Now, he might seem like a undemocratic leader to a lot of people, but as he might just be a polarizing leader in the polls. Uh, it, uh, when yeah. you look at some of the polls. There was one that came out uh, that was published on Friday that gave him a huge lead in terms of who would be the best prime minister. Uh, it gave him 45 percent, 19 percent to the liberal Democratic leader, uh, Joe Swinson, and uh, 17 percent for Corbyn. That's, a, that's an enormous uh, leadership lead. Yes, so he he he's blessed in in the fact that he's surrounded by others who could be even worse than he is as <laughs> as prime minister. But uh, he's still, I think, much disliked by by many others. So he maybe a little bit like in this country, you know, he has the passionate support of one segment of the population, but the bitter uh, dislike among among many others. I think you can read a lot of what's happening with this Brexit mess right now as Boris Johnson trying to solve a domestic political problem, which is that the Conservative Party is split into factions and he doesn't want the the hard Brexit faction to drift away to another political party, to Nigel Farage and another group called the Brexit Party. So a lot of what Johnson is up to is to try to consolidate that. What was the figure you had? The 45% consolidate that group behind him, even if he can't broaden his support any further. Now, is that uh, – you think he's basically doing this in – in anticipation that an election is going to come and he's got to outflank the Brexit party? It, it looks more and more like that, yes. I think he, he would feel that if his hand is somehow forced and he's not able to get Britain out of, of the European Union by October the 31st, he at least needs to show the voters that he has done absolutely everything that he could to make that outcome 
uh, happen. And so he wants to fight off the Brexit party and to consolidate the Conservative Party's support in the general election. But opinion polls don't really suggest he's going to gain very much from an election. I think he may even lose some seats. As you mentioned before, he's just lost his majority in Parliament. He could find that having an election will backfire on him. Although the, the Labour Party might do even worse, other parties could do better. And so he could come back after an election even weaker than he is today. I'm talking with Adam Roberts, Midwest correspondent for The Economist, and we're talking about the latest uh, Brexit news with Parliament uh, in session. And there were fireworks today. You mentioned that uh, Philip Lee, a conservative MP, moved over to the Liberal Democratic Party. What's the significance of something like that? It it played out very dramatically um, as it transpired. is um, Is that a big blow? This is a huge blow. So we've had, I mean, in his case, a a figure who'd been a member of the Conservative Party for decades. I think he'd been a very loyal member. He tended to vote very uh, loyally with the government and so on. But he felt that the, as we talked about earlier, the reckless behavior of Boris Johnson was just too much to take. And and he thought the risk of Britain falling out with no deal from the EU was just going to be too costly in terms of the hit to the economy, the potential loss of access to medicines and food and so on. So he he just thought he couldn't be part of supporting that. At the same time, the Conservative Party is threatening many other rebels within the party that if they don't vote for Boris Johnson's plans, they will be deselected. They will be sort of kicked out of the party before the next election. So we're witnessing a huge civil war within the Conservative Party right now between what we might call the sort of moderate uh, group who used to be around Theresa May and the more hardline group that are now around Boris Johnson. Explain the significance of all these guys being deselected if they don't stick with uh, what Johnson wants. Well, the tradition in Britain is that you get chosen by your local constituency or district party to be the candidate at the election. But there's also a role played by the central uh, office of, of the Conservative Party in London. So both the central government and the local association are supposed to agree on who the candidate is going to be at an election. But what we heard in the last few days from the central government, from Boris Johnson and his allies, is that they would force out those moderates and kick them out of the party and refuse to allow them to be candidates in the next election. And this is seen as something that is really extreme because in the past, many people, including Boris Johnson, have voted against their governments when their consciences told them it was necessary. And to be threatened by being kicked out of the party is seen as a a rather authoritarian uh, threat that is not typical of, of the way British politics is conducted. It would present voters with a starker choice in the election. Yes. Yeah, so what we might see is a, is a rejigging of British politics, where you have one party on the right of British politics, the Conservative Party, that is defined by hostility to Europe, by nationalism, by populism. And then perhaps we'd see a realignment on the sort of centre-left of British politics with perhaps the Labour Party, but certainly the Liberal Democrats and some others who are more internationalist and more willing to support uh, engaging with Europe and uh, being open to trade and working with international organisations. So we might be seeing a shift somewhat like we see in this country between nationalists on one side and those who are more moderate and internationalist on the other. I'm talking with Adam Roberts from The Economist, and we're talking about what's happening in the British Parliament and with Brexit. Now, um, I mentioned that Philip Lee left the Conservatives and went over to the Liberal Democratic Party. 
They yeah. have really positioned themselves as the remainers, uh, the staunch remainers. How is this a sign that that is and, – and Philip Lee was a guy who voted remain. He was a remainer. Uh, mm. Does this mean there is some possible consolidation of remainers within the Lib Dem tent? Yes, it could be. So it's worth remembering that 48% of those who took part in the referendum back in 2016 wanted to remain. So that's a very large proportion of the population. And it's been a while, it's taken a while for that to be reflected in the in the party politics. For the last three years or so, the main parties seem to think that they didn't need to care about what the views of the 48% were. They only had to listen to those who voted in favour of Brexit. But the rise of the Liberal Democrats in the last few months, they did very well in European elections earlier this year. They have a new leader uh, and they are more vocal and more clear about their their wish to have a second referendum to, for Britain to remain within the EU or at least to stay closely connected to the EU. So that has the support of business, of many people in cities, many young people. I, mean, I feel at least half of the population would, would be rather sympathetic to the Liberal Democrats. And given the weakness of the Labour Party these days, there's a great opportunity for the Liberal Democrats to rise up and to perhaps become a more serious force again in, in British politics. So they would take um, voters primarily from the Labour Party, but maybe some conservative folks like Mr. Lee yeah. who who is who were Remainers? Well, I, it could be a rather large chunk of the Conservatives because remember the Conservatives were always the party of business, the, you know, the party of, of those who wanted to do the best that they could to make Britain prosperous through businesses thriving. And that obviously means trading with your nearest and biggest partners. That means Germany, France and the rest of the European Union. And for the party to now become a very nationalistic, inward-looking uh, hostile to international trade, hostile to the European Union, that doesn't suit business. And, and there's a large chunk of the Conservative Party, especially from the south of England around London and so on, that will be saying, no, we, we don't want to go down the route of becoming the Brexit Party. We actually represent a much broader range of interests, including making sure that Britain is as prosperous as possible. So I think there could be both votes from the Conservative Party and from the Labour Party could be drawn across to the Liberal Democrats. Uh, let's talk about the regional issues. Uh, in Scotland, which was heavily Remain, if there's a new election in Scotland, they um, the Tories have uh, 13 seats there and they would probably start losing them, likely to the Scottish National Party. Uh, what, what, would, what would happen? You would... Uh, where, where, are the, where are the Conservatives getting their votes regionally? Yeah, so the Conservatives will do very badly in Scotland. I think there's a long history of the Scots resenting how the English behave towards them. Margaret Thatcher was never very popular north of the border. Boris Johnson is despised. And as you say, the Scottish were very keen on remaining within the European Union. One measure of, of how the Conservatives have a problem in Scotland is that their leader, a very uh, compelling, respected woman, Ruth Davidson, quit the Conservative Party over the weekend because of Boris Johnson's behaviour. So she's seen the writing on the wall. The future for the Conservatives in Scotland looks very grim indeed. Um, if you're in Northern Ireland, you must be worried that 
one great consequence of all this mess over Brexit is that there's enormous uncertainty for what status Northern Ireland is going to have. You know, how, how will it have a border with the rest of Ireland? How will it manage to trade with, with Ireland? What is the risk for the peace deal in, in Northern Ireland? So I fear that the Conservatives, which, remember, the name of the Conservative Party is actually the Conservative and Unionist Party. Well, actually, they're going to preside over potentially the breakup of, of the United Kingdom and deep, deep resentment from the from the regions of Britain towards Boris Johnson. He gets booed whenever he visits those regions. He is much disliked when he gets out and about into those places. And Boris Johnson keeps saying, you know, we can redo this backstop thing. And he's running off to talk about the Irish prime minister about it. But he doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. It, he's just scaring people about it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think what's become clear in the last 24 hours is that that was very disingenuous, that the Europeans have pointed out he's not come up with any concrete or e any detailed suggestions of what he would do instead of the backstop. It looks very much like he's just trying to run down the clock until Halloween and to find all sorts of excuses for not acting, and then suddenly Britain will be gone from the European Union with no deal uh, at the end of October. And so it looks like this is a pretense. He's not actually negotiating. He's just trying to win time. And um, so if uh, he, if his, you know, parliament seems to know this and everybody seems willing to vote on this uh, uh, bill that is going to prohibit a no-deal Brexit, mm. um, then we get an October 14th election or some people seem to think Boris would try to finagle it and change it to um, at the end of the month where it would make a um, uh, Brexit happen anyway. Yeah, so that's, that's one of the great risks. And Tony Blair, the former prime minister, warned yesterday that the idea of having an election in this period is a great elephant trap for the Labour Party or indeed a, a threat for those who want to avoid falling out of the European Union because if the timing of the election is, is not very carefully chosen, then it may be impossible to stop uh, Britain falling out with no deal because the MPs won't be sitting in Parliament. So their, their absence from Parliament could become an opportunity for Boris Johnson. So if there is going to be an election, it really needs to happen early. So October the 14th is the date that many people are talking about. But of course, that doesn't solve anything. Just because we've had an election doesn't mean the whole thing is solved. We're still stuck with the same mess, but potentially with a different leader or a different party in charge. Yep. And if, uh, if there were a uh, election on October 14th, it looks like you would just get um, a more even distribution of parliamentary <laughs> seats among the four parties, essentially the four main parties. And you, then you end up with a hung parliament and some kind of... Yeah. Odd conglomeration, possibly. I think it would be a very hard election to predict accurately because you've got several parties that would be potentially, or, or voters, for example, who would be hopping between parties trying to make a calculation of, of what impact their votes would have. And should you vote Liberal Democrat in order to get a chance to remain in the European Union? Should you be jumping towards the Brexit Party or the Conservative Party to have a hard Brexit? So we would have an extraordinarily messy and rushed election in the next month or so. Uh, it's going to be very lively to, to follow if this is what happens. And everybody's pointing to the last election with uh, Theresa May having a 20-point lead going into the election and then uh, it evaporated. The things, yeah. can, things can happen fast. They can happen fast. I think her bad luck was that she 
she's a very, she was and is a very poor uh, campaigner, whereas Boris Johnson, as you mentioned before, has charisma and has some, some skill at campaigning. So he, he might expect to do better than she did. Equally, Jeremy Corbyn, who has been the Labour leader for some years, is widely despised as ineffective and indecisive. And so I don't think he would excite people in the way that he managed to do uh, back when he ran against Theresa May. So it may be slightly better for Boris Johnson now, but it's very, very hard to predict. In, in every day in, in British politics is another explosion. So who knows what will happen in the next six weeks or so. Adam Roberts is the Midwest correspondent for The Economist. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about all the fireworks in Parliament today and the possibility of an upcoming election in Britain. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, Building Community the Fun Way will find out about the upcoming Chicago bike revolution. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Westtown Bikes celebrates 15 years of providing youth programs in Humboldt Park with Chicago Bike Revolution. It's bikes, beers, and bands. And this party is taking place on Saturday in Humboldt Park. All the, all the proceeds go to support Westtown Bikes developmental and job training programs for young people. With me is Alex Wilson, Executive Director of Westtown Bikes. Good to see you, Alex. Good to see you, Jerome. Thanks for having me. Explain what Westtown Bikes is to people who have never heard of it. Sure. Westtown Bikes is a nonprofit organization. We have a community bike shop. But our mission is to use bikes as a tool to help build community. And we do this in a number of ways. Our main focus is youth programs. And we do after-school and summer programs, both at our location in Humble Park, but also with partners all over the city. Uh, we also offer adult classes, evenings and weekends, and then we're involved in many community partnerships. What were you thinking 15 years ago when you started this? Did you have a vision that was exactly what you just articulated to me? What I was thinking 15 years ago was working with young people from Bickerdike Housing uh, and, and teaching them some skills, uh, both uh, shop skills and, and life skills and putting them on bikes and showing them Chicago. And from there, one thing led to the next. I, I had no idea that Westtown Bikes would evolve into what it has, but it has really grown into something fantastic. Um, now, you've been – how do you fund this organization? I mean, you do have a bike shop, and so that is uh, that is an ongoing economic entity. Yes. We fund things every way and any way that we can. And so we do have an, a bike shop, and this is a, a big anniversary for our bike shop. Uh, this is the 10th anniversary of Ciclo Urbano, uh, which is the name of our bike shop, uh, located at the corner of Division and Campbell uh, 
on Paseo Bariqua in the, the heart of the Puerto Rican community in, in Chicago. Uh, so Ciclo Urbano is, is a big part of our budget, but we also apply for grants uh, both locally and, and nationally. Uh, and we also do contracting with other organizations that uh, provide youth programs. Then we have our adult classes, evenings and weekends. One of my goals in life is to go to the Build-A-Bike workshop and build a bike. Yes. Uh, and winter is a great time for, for Build-A-Bike. <laughs> uh, you can still get your hands on bikes even though the biking season has slowed down some. Yes. And so as far as funding goes, every way in any way that we can make things happen. And one of the big things that you have been doing recently in recent years is um, this uh, Tour de Fat thing that was happening. Sure. We did uh, Tour de Fat for over 10 years with New Belgium Brewing. Tour de Fat uh, is New Belgium Brewing's traveling bicycle festival. It's not traveling as much as it once did. Uh, and Things have changed uh, for New Belgium and for the beer industry. But what stays in Chicago is great bike culture, great beer culture, and great band culture. And so taking that momentum and celebrating these big anniversaries for us, uh, we had to put on uh, a festival. And so you're going you're going on your own this year with uh, bikes, beer, and bands with um – the Chicago Bike Revolution, which I, which I like the whole name, and, and you, you get the name and you get the beer company. Yes, yeah. yes. So I wouldn't say we're totally on our own. We have a big partner in, <laughs> in Revolution Brewing, and uh, yeah, Revolution has always been really good to us. Uh, and I've known Josh for 20 years now. Uh, we go back a long time in, in bikes uh, as well as beer. Yes, and so it was just a great fit and great timing. Josh Death is here. He is the founder of Revolution Brewing. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jerome. Thanks for stepping up here. Oh, definitely. It's, uh, it's great to be a part of a, an event that has like a history and also to create something new, some new energy, support West Town Bikes. I remember I've known Alex for about 20 years now. We met doing Chicago Critical Mass back in the day. Uh, we used to do events for West Town at the Handlebar restaurant that I used to yeah. own. And uh, so I was around when West Town Bikes got going and saw it start from a little program to a shop, you know, to a storefront. And it's great to support the great work they're doing in Humboldt And Revolution Park. Brewing's become uh, so successful. You're selling beer all over the place. And, um, but you still do a lot of grassroots hosting of events and uh, participation. Yeah. For me, that was always a, a big part of why I wanted to get into the beer industry and do this. Beer itself builds community, bringing people together, and um, a lot of good times to be had. And as much as we can do to help support all kinds of groups in the neighborhood, we love it. We can do local programs with groups like right in our neighborhood where we make the beer. Um, but we work all across the city and even the region with all kinds of groups. And you name it, we host events at the Brew Pub on Milwaukee Avenue. We probably host about 100 different nonprofit events throughout the year. And um, support lots of events with beer donations, of course. And when we can take it up another notch like this and really be a sponsor of an event here, it's like when Alex came up with the name Chicago Bike Revolution, I had a hard time <laughs> saying no. <laughs> the, um, now, I understand you've got some fun stuff up your sleeve. Is there uh, – now, Humboldt Park became globally renowned for this alligator that was in the pond there. And uh, you've got a alligator beer. It's been a really fun story and a fun thing to be a part. Obviously, you know, uh, it's kind of odd when people discovered there was a gator in the in the in the pool where all the kids were swimming and everything, and in the lagoon. <laughs> but you know, uh, it turned into a kind of a weird story. We made a beer around it. We had a beer that was already in planning. It was a coconut pineapple wit beer, 
we figured that would be the kind of beer that an alligator might enjoy <laughs> in, a, in a hot day. It's got a tropical feel to it. Exactly. And it was Coconuts. It was actually like the Not best-selling beers. beer that we've ever had at our brew pub. It's just sometimes these days, the, the kids and their internet, it just takes over and people get excited about it. Everyone wanted a taste of it. And we sold it all out except for we saved two kegs um, because we knew we had this event coming up taking place right <laughs> in, there. In, in the Humboldt Park. Park. In Humboldt yep. Park, right next to his residence. And so we figured we would... Drop the last two kegs there. We'll tap those up right after the bike parade ends uh, at the beginning of the festival, and we'll take it from there. We're talking about Chicago Bike Revolution. It is celebrating Westtown Bikes with a gigantic beer, bikes, and bands party in Humboldt Park. And Alex, explain the, the motif here and what happens in the course of a Saturday here. Sure. Uh, one of the things that I'm very excited about is that this is a Chicago festival. It's in a Chicago neighborhood. It's benefiting a Chicago organization, Chicago beer, and all Chicago bands. And so the day will start off. Uh, 1 p.m., we're going to launch a parade. And our good friends Mukapazzo will give us a fanfare as we we roll out, and then the they are they are a strong biking band and have a strong biking history. We're going to go out with some of their music, and oh. uh, they're they're very enjoyable. Yes, uh, when I got my start, they were my roommates, uh, and I shared space uh, with their founder Mark Messing. In the back of his studio was where the original Westtown Bikes was, and so. Yeah, so we have this history together, and we're excited to have them be part of the Chicago Bike Revolution. And they're really going to kick it off. Uh, and after the, the parade comes back, then they will uh, be the first live act that will start out, out in the audience and end up on stage. What's the parade like? What is a, what is a real bike parade happen and look like? It is Everyone and everything that shows up to the parade. Do Josh, people dress up? Oh, yes, definitely. Costumes are highly encouraged. Yeah, I, I and, think alligator costumes would be <laughs> smart. Yes, I think there will be an alligator costume, uh, and at least one or two. Uh, and Yes, and so very fun and festive. Uh, and Josh mentioned critical mass. Both he and I have a background in that. And really, you know, our background in, in bike activism is to make it fun, make it friendly, and make it inviting so everyone wants to be a part. And certainly that will be the spirit of our of our parade and it'll be the the real spirit of of the festival this fun inviting accessible per, uh, party parade so uh the parade uh, is a local parade will go through humble park and up into logan square uh, take pretty probably 45 uh, minutes to an hour and when it gets back it'll really kick off the festival festival has a full lineup of of bands We'll also have all kinds of activities, lawn games, lounges. There's a VIP section. And so very, very festive and fun, very friendly. Crazy bike corral. There will be a freak bike pit uh, that will have all kinds of, of crazy bikes in it. You were mentioning that you have one that you might be, might bring. Yes, I have a buddy bike, which is a side-by-side tandem. You ride right next to the other person. You know, kind I of, think sometimes they're called sociables. Sociables, because yes. you're right next door. They are. There is a reason why they lost to the front and back tandem, yes, because they, they are much more difficult to handle. We, we have a few homegrown versions of the sociable that are quadricycles that we've, we've built. So a little easier to ride. Uh, also fun to, to ride with your kids on. So uh, that'll be one of the many attractions of the freak bikes that we have in the freak bike pit. And so you curated the bands for so that it's all Chicago bands. Yes, Chicago is so rich with culture, uh, bikes and beer and bands. And so we have a, a really great lineup of Chicago talent that's really broad spectrum of genres. Uh, headlining with the Omais, uh, and before them, Sen Marimoto, uh, and 
uh, Glad Rags, Negative Scanner, Little Church, and of course we mentioned Mukapatsa. So, you know, just a really broad spectrum uh, going from punk marching band uh, to uh, ethereal alt rock to electronic to uh, uh, rock and roll to soul, R&B, hip hop. Yeah, it's a really broad spectrum of great music that Chicago has to offer. When does it end? What happens if it just keeps going? Oh, that would be great. I don't know if the park will <laughs> let us have it, uh, keep going. Uh, Omai is uh, go on stage at 9, and they should wrap up at, at 10, and, and that'll finish off the festival. And there's food trucks and plenty of places to eat around Humboldt Park if, if people want to eat. Yes, most definitely. And uh, afterwards, Handlebar, which uh, Josh mentioned, which one of the, the, our first hangouts, uh, they'll be doing a special that will, will benefit West End Bikes as well. So what's the goal here? I mean, if you end up with how big a pile of money for job training programs and young people? What are you, what, what is, you, if you got your fingers crossed? Oh, yes. And- Everyone come out. All the money in the world is what we need. And, uh, and really, this year is our first year of doing it on our own. And so uh, we would love to see 3,000 people come out. And we would love to uh, raise over $25,000 for our programs. That would be an outstanding day's work, I think. I think so, too. Um, it's got to be a lot of work to put this on. I imagine you've got people uh, doing all sorts of crazy stuff We do. Uh, and we're not doing it all on our own. You know, Revolution has been a, a big help. Westdown Bikes has a huge volunteer base that we really rely on. Uh, we've been working with Ravenswood Events uh, for the production of it, and they've been fantastic. Uh, and Empty Bottle Productions has uh, done the music lineup for us. So many partners to make this happen. Um, is there a person you could identify uh, that you've helped with Westdown Bikes that you're, you're, it kind of epitomizes the spirit? I could identify many, but uh, here is one, and this is the, the Chicago Bike Revolution is kind of going to be kind of his send-off. Uh, Anthony Cruz, who is our shop manager at, at Ciclo Urbano. Uh, Anthony was a high school dropout, uh, and we learned this because he was hanging out at the shop during school days. Uh, and we're like, what are you doing? Uh, and we like you here, but you can't be skipping school. Uh, we got him into the alternative high school down the street from us, Pedro Abizu Campo High School. He ended up getting his GED. Uh, and he worked for us at our, our bike shop, went off to some other bike shops and got some more experience. We recruited him back uh, to manage our bike shop. And now he's been recruited by Divi to go and manage some of their programs. And so nice. he, he's a great, uh, you know, a great example of the, the work that we do in youth development and really community building. Well, congratulations on everything you've done for the last 15 years with Westtown Bikes there in Humboldt Park. And I hope everybody comes out Saturday for Chicago Bike Revolution. If people want more information, there's Facebook. There's all sorts of Yeah, things. check out our Facebook event. We have a great video that uh, features Chance the Snapper uh, getting <laughs> ready for the fest. Josh, uh, Josh. Also, trybikerev.org. <laughs> Josh Death, thanks a lot for joining us, and thanks for everything at Revolution Brewing. Thanks, Jerome. Coming up after the break, food contributor Monica Eng is back at the revival of organic and, or, and ancient wheat grains. She's really into wheat grains. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Bob Quinn was the son of a conventional wheat farmer in Montana. Bob farmed that way himself, and he expected that his kids would do the same. That is until he started growing organic and ancient wheat grains. Bob realized these grains had the potential to protect the earth, improve health, and restore jobs to rural areas. He wrote a book about it called Grain by Grain. Worldview food and health contributor Monica Eng speaks to him about it. Thanks, Jerome. I'm here with author and farmer Bob Quinn to talk about his book, Grain by Grain, a quest to revive ancient wheat, rural jobs, and health food with co-author Liz Carlisle. Thanks, Bob, for coming. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. So you've got this incredible backstory. Can you tell me how you got to this point where you wanted to write about ancient grains and and how you you made a living of, of reviving some of these older grains that are good for the earth? Well, I did, actually. It's a a story that occurred over about 35 years ago. I came back to the farm after getting a Ph.D. in plant biochemistry. I thought I would be a great plant scientist somewhere in the world, and I ended up coming back to where I was raised. And it ended up, although it didn't start out this way, but I ended up turning my whole farm into my laboratory and my garden. We have about um, 2,400 acres at the time where my grandfather started this farm in 1920, and my father was raised there after him, and I raised my children there. And that's where I wanted to raise my family. And and uh, by accident, started uh, looking at organic agriculture in the 80s and selling grain directly to whole grain bakers off our farm in order to really help us make a living for two families. The farm wasn't big enough for one. Well, why not just grow wheat the way uh, modern farming and, and land-grant institutions are telling us to grow wheat? Well, that's the way I started out. and But that's not the direction our customers took us. And... After I started growing or selling our wheat directly to whole grain bakers, about a year later in 1984, they asked me if I could find organic wheat of the same kind of high protein and and good baking qualities that I had in our wheat from our farm. And I didn't even believe in organic at that time. I knew no organic farmers, but because our customer was asking us, I told them, don't worry about a thing. I'll find some for you. And it took me about two weeks to find my first organic farmer in far northeast corner of Montana who had organic wheat. And I started an organic wheat business. And the more I got acquainted with organic farmers, I was very interested in their stories. They were growing their own fertilizer. They were using rotations to uh, break up disease cycles and wheat cycles so they didn't use pesticides or herbicides. And that was very, very intriguing to me um, because those inputs were costing us a lot of money. And sometimes they weren't even working as well as the manufacturers claim. And I started doing experiments on my own farm in about 86, and I was immediately uh, converted. And by 91, we were certified organic, 100% of the whole farm. So that was the first step. And then we started, uh, for our customers again, um, providing uh, alternatives to the modern um, wheat to them. And we've had a a line on um, ancient grain that I tell all about in my book, how we came on to that. That's another, a whole other segment of the story. And um, it had a wonderful flavor. And what was very unusual, that one of our neighbors who couldn't eat modern wheat could eat this without any difficulty. Not only could she eat it, she said it made her feel better after she ate it. And when that happened, then we took a whole different view. I took a whole different view of this, not as a novelty, but as something that was helpful for people. 
And I started doing research on it. First, we had very little luck finding researchers in America who wanted to work with us. They felt like if people, uh, wheat was wheat in their mind, no wheat's different from any other. And if a person felt like they're having better luck, it was all in their head. And so we went then to Italy where if you can't eat pasta, this is a major uh, difficulty. Yeah. And they just don't run down the street looking for wheat-free, gluten-free. They want to know what's the problem and let's fix it. It's a much different mentality than we have in America yeah. where we just keep on going down the same trail, um, putting Band-Aids on uh, things rather than really understanding what the root causes are and trying to fix problems. Yeah. So that's, that's what I've come to see as a, a big frustration. But anyway, we found researchers that were willing to help us. And, and after um, spending a lot of time, a lot of money, we have now um, 31 peer-reviewed journal articles showing the difference between people who had experimented with eating modern wheat compared to ancient wheat, just in as a double-blind crossover study. Each ate it for a certain period of time and then uh, had a washout period and then they ate the other diet. And what we found that was most astounding, that was most different from these people is the anti-inflammatory properties of the ancient wheat. Modern wheat causes inflammation in small levels and ancient wheat is anti-inflammatory. And the difference was 35 to 40 percent. And it was amazing. Uh, we were seeing uh, differences in lowering of cholesterol and blood sugar and um, insulin and insulin resistance, increases of magnesium in the blood and calcium and zinc, many times um, more than what pills can do. And the researchers were astounded by this. And so as I've covered, you know, uh, the, the rise in gluten sensitivity, celiac disease, and, you know, the two are very different. And, you know, people who are saying, oh, these gluten people, they're just getting on the bandwagon. Whenever I've gone to doctors and they say there's no difference, it's all in their heads, <laughs> and I wish they would just shut up. Yes. Uh, but we are seeing science come out that shows, you know, certainly at least now they're accepting this term non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Yes, at first, yes. they, they wouldn't even say That's that. That's right. That's it wasn't right. true. You're absolutely right. And so what what is the science pointing to? What what are the irritants for people? Is well that well we've yet? seen well, I think there's way more than just one. It's way more complicated than just gluten. So what we've done with wheat, we've farmed it differently. We're farming it in an industrial chemical model. That's changing the wheat, and it doesn't matter what kind of wheat. It's changing all the wheat that we're farming um, and with organic and um, regenerative organic uh, models. We know that the crops raised come out with more nutrition. So just by the way we farm, we're, we're lowering the nutritional value and, and hence the health value of our food. Um, at because the, sec- the soil's not as healthy to begin right. with. Yeah. So the, how I was trained and how I was brought up yeah. was to look at the soil as a, a medium to hold the plant and it would suck minerals out of the soil and water, but it, that was it. And so we dumped minerals on the soil as we took out nitrogen. We replaced it with uh, ammonium nitrate or urea and the soil just held that mineral until the plant sucked it up. Mm-hmm. And uh, we focused on feeding the plants. In regenerative organic systems, we understand that we really need to focus on feeding the soil and the vitality of the soil. And if you have healthy soil that's vibrant and really alive with um, its own life and activity, then it can support healthy plants. If you have healthy plants, you're going to have healthy people. So all those things are connected together. And if you remove that link, then you start seeing the discrepancies that I told you about earlier. 
So a lot of people, as these lawsuits are happening in California about glyphosate, are telling us in order to dry out the wheat in that last period, it's often covered in, in glyphosate or Roundup. Well, especially as you go for the north. For the north you go, the more anxious uh, farmers are about getting their crop in. And if there's any uh, green left in the field, they'll just spray it with glyphosate so it completely desiccates and, and kills those plants and dries them out. Um, because that's what you need to harvest. Because So the harvest can come before yeah. the snow yeah. or before the fall rains start. So it's all about uh, convenience and industrialization. It's an industrial model again. Yeah. Um, they perceive this as lowering the risk. Uh, but yet it's actually increasing the risk for people who eat this grain as a form of bread. And research coming out of Canada has demonstrated that um, traces of glyphosate mimic what people are referring to as wheat sensitivities. So some of the wheat sensitivities could very well lie at the doorstep of glyphosate. You're listening to WBEZ's Worldview, and today I'm here with author and farmer Bob Quinn to talk about his book, Grain by Grain, a quest to revive ancient wheat, rural jobs, and health food. The number of friends of mine who say, oh, I would love to have some of your bread, but I just can't eat it, Monica. You know, I've recently become, you know, very sensitive to gluten. Well, I've got a few things I could try. Okay. <laughs> but just to finish the glyphosate story, sure. you know, Monsanto took out patents on glyphosate as a antibiotic. And they claimed that it didn't affect human cells. And I don't know that there's been too much research to demonstrate that it does affect them directly because it affects metabolic pathways that are found in plants. And that's why all plants are killed. They haven't been made into GMOs that resist that. But uh, what else it does is affect bacteria, which means that um, it's serving as an antibiotic. In a sense, it's killing bacteria. So where are bacteria found? Well, they're found in the ground. But the other place you find bacteria, and people don't think about this either so much, is right in your gut. And so if you start messing with those, you're going to deteriorate your health. And I think that's a lot that's what's happening. So we have all kinds of things in play. So in previous interviews, I've talked to folks at a bakery in Chicago called Hewn, uh, where they make this wonderful sourdough with local organic grains. And they say, we can't tell you the number of people who've stopped in and said, someone gave me a slice of your bread at a party. I was uh, hesitant at first because I can't eat bread. And for some reason, they were able to eat yes. it. Yes. So talk to me about these grains you grow that, that people seem to tolerate better. Well, we started out with this Kamut uh, course on Kamut's a trademark that we use to guarantee our customers that this ancient grain of Coruscant was always going to be organically grown, high in protein, high in minerals, and never mixed with modern wheat. And... Our research has demonstrated a big difference between it and modern wheat, and I am guessing because it's just the sort of thing you said and many other people have told me that most uh, heritage and heirloom and um, ancient grains have the same nutritional properties that haven't been stripped out by plant breeders who are focused only in high yields. But the other thing that's going on, so that's the plant breeding point, and they've done a big and a wonderful job. Uh, the whole goal of the country and the government is to produce plentiful, cheap food, and they've done that. Yeah, big, fluffy loaves of bread. That's right. Yeah. Imagine selling air for the price of bread, <laughs> and that's what's going on. Yeah. The bakers wanted bread that they could have more loaves with less wheat, and they were able to do that by changing the gluten. 
and they changed it very successfully so it could hold more air, hold mm-hmm. more gas that was being um, uh, made in the fermentation. Now, the other thing that the bakers have done to compound this problem is by the use of fast-rising yeast. And this works so fast that it only has time to digest or break down the sugar that they add mm-hmm. um, into carbon dioxide and alcohol, which bakes off, and the carbon dioxide is trapped as gas rising the bread. This is in big contrast, and you've already mentioned the magic word, to lung fermentations, which also includes sourdough. And, in fact, research uh, has demonstrated that uh, 48 hours of of a sourdough fermentation destroys 97% of all the gluten in that flour. So 97% of all the gluten that's in a loaf of bread of a long-term fermentation of sourdough is gone. And that's another reason that people can eat it. Um, if you add a, a heritage wheat or an ancient wheat, or starting with that, I should say, that hasn't had the gluten changed, then you're leveraging even more to the the side of the road that people who have trouble with bread can probably eat this. With our research, with the Kumukorosan, we find that 85% of people who say they have wheat sensitivities can eat it with no problem. Now, if you add sourdough fermentations to that, you're probably going to increase that even more. We haven't really done that study because this is more recent information that's come to us. But thats I'm just telling you there's more than one input here that's causing a problem. It's not only chemical agriculture. It's not only changing the, the grain through plant breeding, but it's also the way we process our foods and, and over-process them and, and focusing only on high production, high efficiency, low cost, and cheap food. And when you throw away the traditions of thousands of years, you know, there was a reason that people ate and and grew the way they did for thousands of years. It was sustainable in most cases. I mean, they had famines when when the weather didn't cooperate, of course. But uh, we don't need to avoid those kind of problems by changing the whole food supply. Let's improve our food storage, for instance, and, and guard against famines. We don't have to change everything so food can stay on this shelf for for six or eight months and be um, fresh. And it's all about uh, convenience and centralization and, and, and shipping all over the country and all that kind of stuff that really is the detriment of, of small communities and local food production. So part of the title of your book is also Reviving Rural Jobs. How does that fit into the equation? Well, it's just what I mentioned in the last sentence. When you are uh, focusing on, and you mentioned it earlier, on local bakeries, instead of having a centralized baker that sends their bread all over the country or half the country. This is, this is insane. We, why not use what we grow locally to support our local population? Um, it can be more closely monitored. We don't have to worry about adding all these preservatives because it can be bought several times a week. Okay, it's a little less convenient. How much time do we spend in in sports and, and recreation and all this On other Facebook. things? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> My Facebook, yes, yeah. right. And how much of that time could we maybe uh, just pair away to eat better by supporting our local food production systems and our local processing facilities like a, a corner bakery? Mm-hmm. Or a mill. Or, or, a, or a local mill that actually is small enough to handle these um, special wheats and, and heritage wheats and heirloom grains. That the big mills, when they're do, doing rail car loads at a time, they, they're not set up for this sort of thing. And I think people's tastes are changing. There's no reason we have to have one bread for the whole country. Why don't we have regional breads and make it fun for people to travel around and, and enjoy regional cuisine? 
So, Bob, what are the best ways to enjoy these kinds of grains? I would say go to your local bakery. Most most towns and cities in America have them now and support them and say, wow, did, if, they, if they see something or ask for something new, ask them. Well, you're being modest. You also have Kamut bars, and if you don't want to toot your own horn, I'll toot it for you. Tell me about those. <laughs> okay. Well, another thing we've done locally, we also grow high leg safflower. It's um, monounsaturated fat, and we have now established a an oil company, a vegetable oil company on our farm where we crush mm, that seed. Then we um, use some of that oil to roast our ancient grain into a kind of a corn nut type uh, product with it's crunchy and cracking mm. called Kraken Kamut. And we're just getting started with that, but it's employing people in our local community where the jobs have been going out mostly and we're trying to dr- bring the jobs back. And the waste, the oil is also sold to Montana State University and University of Montana where they use it in all their fry, frying in their kitchens and we get the, the used oil back and we pay them a little bit for that and then we clean that up and we put it in our tractor. Wow. So, so we use it twice. We yeah. use it twice. And it's not biodiesel. It's oh. straight vegetable oil. Wow. So we're avoiding the processing required to create biodiesel, which means we can only use it in the summer, but actually we're only farming in the summer. So it works fine for us. And if we did that all over America, we can't, I think growing our own fuel doesn't make much sense, especially if you're doing it in a chemical way with chemical fertilizers and everything. You're putting more energy into that fuel than you're getting back. But imagine if you're using your potential fuel first as food, and then after that process is done, as with oil, you can then use it for fuel. This is a, a way that really resolves the food versus fuel debate that's yeah. going on in America. Yeah, so much of our corn either goes to livestock feed or to fuel. And I don't understand how we can say that everyone's going to starve because we're not growing enough food. It's yeah. like we're feeding it to our gas tanks. Yes. Well, Bob Quinn, co-author with Liz Carlisle of Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great to be here. That was Worldview Food and Health contributor Monica Eng talking with the author of Grain by Grain, Bob Quinn. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to do some history. And this last weekend was the 80th anniversary of the start of World War II. And we are going to chat with Timothy Snyder. He's the author of Bloodlands, a book about World War II. And uh, we're going to chat about uh, some of the lessons that we might uh, draw from the start of World War II for today. Timothy Snyder is also the author of On Tyranny, about the dangers of tyranny in the U.S. and other places around the world these days. And we will chat with him about about uh, how U.S. institutions are holding up against tyranny in the United States. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.